Hello and welcome to Story Radio, the podcast for readers, writers and lovers of short stories. Today we are talking to Helen Fields, who went from being a criminal barrister to becoming an international bestseller, writing dark crime novels with a grim realism and authenticity. Her twelfth novel, The Institution, is published by HarperCollins, March the 2nd. The Institution tells the story of uh, Dr Connie Woolwine, who takes on a case um, involving a fetal abduction in an asylum for serial killers and very disturbed individuals, along with her colleague, Barda. Hello, Helen, and welcome to Story Radio. Hello, thank you. Lovely to be here. I'd like to ask you about Dr. Connie Woolwine. She's a very, she struck me as a very sort of impulsive character who takes a lot of risks. She's not the kind of police procedural or character who's careful, thinks things through, and is very analytical. She's the opposite of that. How did you come up with the idea for her? What inspired you? So Connie Woolwine was born when we were living in America with my, my family and I were out there. And uh, through a very convoluted set of coincidences, uh, one of the people who lived, I think, sort of uh, two roads away from us was my British best friend's old university mate. Uh, and, and, you know, of anywhere in the States, they happened to be living two roads away from us. Um, and uh, his wife um, had a twin sister worked in the FBI and was very friendly with a profiler. So it was this whole set of circumstances that ran through. And um, I was, I've always been fascinated by profiling. I think there are so many true crime podcasts and, uh, you know, all sorts of TV programmes about profiling. You, you go back as far as Silence of the Lambs and, and Clary Starling. Um, so I've been interested, but then I actually got to meet and talk to this profiler who was actively working with the FBI. Um, and it's the hardest section to get into within the FBI. You have to be the very best of the best. Everyone who becomes an agent really wants to apply to become a profiler. And uh, she made it and she was very senior. And uh, brilliantly, this is when I was writing a book called The Shadow Man, I actually got to send all my case notes, all my work notes, everything, my character notes, through to this profiler. And then they came on the phone and I did a whole case conference about my book and they worked it through as if it were a real profile and a real case. It was so exciting. Um, I, I was just, you know, it was that fangirl moment. I was really glad I wasn't in person, I was on the phone <laughs> because I got to sit there and properly be excited without them seeing me. Um, and they worked that through. So Connie Woolwine first appeared in The Shadow Man. She makes a very brief cameo appearance in uh, One for Sorrow. And uh, she was such a strong character, and I'd been able to work up such a good profile for her as a character that I didn't want to sort of let her disappear off into the ether. So I brought her back for the institution. Um, and she is extremely blunt and very quirky, um, and, and a great fun character to write because of that. And she doesn't do things the way you'd expect them done. Um, and that's what the joy is of writing her. Because I write so many police procedurals, it's nice to have a character who can break free of that. Yeah, she really does push the boundaries, doesn't she, for what you would expect she does. her behaviour Could you tell us a little bit about how you research life in a high-security asylum and the processes of holding dangerous patients? You obviously did a lot of research when you um, started working on the, the profiler character, so I expect you probably did a lot of research for this as well. Yes, and of course, um, having a background as a criminal barrister meant that I spent a lot of time. I was in 
uh, prisons constantly. I dealt with people who had mental health issues. So I was also going in to have conferences inside um, uh, effectively um, prison hospitals and these sorts of wards. So uh, I have first-hand experience of that. And a lot of it was kind of reading around the issues, rules and regulations, looking into places like uh, Broadmoor. Uh, my sister for a long time worked as a teacher within um, uh, with prisons, but she wor worked at Broadmoor briefly. Uh, my brother-in-law is a prison guard. Um, so I've got quite a lot of access. My cousin's a police officer. So um, I have lots of uh, first-hand sources of information about these sorts of things. And um, obviously in the course of my time as a barrister, I work with a lot of psychiatrists and psychologists. Um, sometimes they were on the other side of a case than me. Uh, sometimes I would go and they would be my witness. So really, I had a lot of background information. Um, and that enabled me to put together a very full picture of what this would be like. I think what's interesting about it is that prison hospitals, high security units vary hugely um, from very, very high tech and up to the minute if they've been built now, but also in lots of places in the world, we're reusing, literally reusing old military facilities, old hospitals that weren't purposed for that, um, old prisons, old schools sometimes. Um, and there's some of the, what we used to call asylums, are, are still very much in use today. And um, or, or, so, yeah, certainly they've only fallen out of use kind of within the last 50 years. So you can still see pictures of them online. You still get a really good idea. Um, today, we just really combine that with better security. Sadly, the actual um, hospital side of these hasn't always moved on quite as much as we should have done. People are still kept in, frankly, fairly um, unpleasant conditions uh, around the world. I was, um, was very interested by your opening because it's kind of quite a brutal opening quite an intense forensic examination of the victim's body did you find that difficult to write you know i don't find this stuff difficult to write i'm very conscious that when i'm writing the more brutal elements of any book and i think it's probably fair to say that i'm slightly known for the, the kind of darker edge of crime and those sorts of books um, and I don't shy away from it at all. Some people, I think, if I said they find it a little bit, you know, it's hard to read. Um, I don't find that hard to write, provided I'm staying on the respectful end of it. By which I mean, if I feel like I'm crossing a line into something that is unnecessarily gory, or that's beyond the context of the story or the scene, I know that I'm taking it too far. And then I pull myself back. Because I don't really think, unless you're writing that, you know, um, that horror B-movie genre where you just want to kind of splash as much you know, blood and gore around as you can. That's not what I'm doing. What I'm trying to write is something that doesn't shy away from showing a full picture. That's different. It's a really difficult line not to cross over into glorification or kind of um, abusing a scene for your own purposes instead of just making, it sh making sure that the reader can see it through your eyes. And that's, that's difficult. So I don't find the kind of um, mechanics of it difficult to write. I find it very hard making sure that I don't unnecessarily offend people or abuse my position as a writer just to, you know, go too far. And it's very, um, what the, in that scene, Connie is very much on the victim's side, if you like. It's not a kind of um, objectifying gaze at all. That she's using yeah. when she's um, looking at the victim. Mm. 
Not a, she's very um, she's very caring. Yes, yes, exactly. And I have to say, having spoken to pathologists, that's very much the way they are too. You know, they are um, deeply respectful. They are always aware that this isn't just a case with a, with a number. This is always a human being, and it doesn't matter who they were and what they've done. Um, if they died in circumstances where they've ended up there, then something terrible has happened. And I think that's very much how Connie Woolwine comes into it as well. She's just constantly aware that, um, you know, she has to uh, be caring and be respectful. And, um, but also, I mean, in terms of telling the story, that's really important because that's how I know that I have to engage the reader straight away. If I bring in a character at the start who really is emotionally invested and who cares about this body and what's happened to them and the story behind it, then the reader immediately starts caring. So it's um, a little bit of a literary device. It's very, very important for me when I read books to um, have uh, an immediate level of emotional engagement that has to be from the first chapter. Books when I don't have find that or feel that, uh, I find that I'm much more likely to shut down and switch off or kind of be able to wander away. So we all know that, you know, those books that we love are because uh, those characters um, hit home into our emotional uh, kind of being very early on. So that, that, that's, that's why it, it unfolded like that. Um, also because um, for me it's important to like the main character in a book. Uh, I know other people, different writers have different views about this and feel able to do that. I don't feel able to uh, have central characters that readers feel um, uh, ambivalent about because um, for me that leaves me feeling as if I constantly want a little bit more. The um, setting, the storyline have a very gothic feel uh, with the sort of brooding um, asylum and the, you know, the, the way the sort of the killers are all incarcerated and, and so on. Is that a genre that influences you at all? It is, you know, and whenever we talk about either horror or um, crime or these darker books, you come back to the kind of um, haunting of Hill House, kind of, you know, the spectre of um, uh, buildings as characters. And that Gothic style um, is one that, you know, none of us walk away from. We're still writing those books. We're still watching those movies. Uh, they are utterly iconic. And when other writers like Stephen King is still writing, and he writes these places because it's easier in some ways to build a place in your mind than it is to build a single person because we all see them differently. But if you're writing about a place and you do it really well, every reader should have roughly the same experience of that, that place. So it's a very consistent character in a book. Um, but also, um, you know, I think we all grew up with those stories. There was always one house in the neighbourhood that was a bit dilapidated or, a, you know, a block of flats or something that you didn't go into. And that I think it goes back to childhood. Whenever you walk down a road, if there's one house that doesn't look or feel quite right, you're super aware of it as a child and as a teenager. And you don't really lose that. And we're very good at imagining things happening in strange looking houses or you know behind closed doors uh, and so it's about playing on that a little bit um, but of course these places really still do exist you know we still in the UK have a lot of these ancient and old asylums and um, without being too spiritualistic about it they do look as if they've soaked up that misery and that history of 
pain and illness and quite often abuse and maltreatment. Um, and it, they do just look from the outside sometimes as if that, that is kind of etched in stone. And I think that's why with this particular story it really worked. Did you have a specific place in mind that you were both basing around? Or? No, I honestly didn't, slightly because I didn't want to be influenced when I wrote it. So um, when I was looking and researching a lot of these places, I was looking quite often at the internal shots of what individual rooms look like and operating rooms and, you know, the old baths that they used to use and give people freezing cold baths mm. and things like that to kind of uh, bring them to their senses. It was all nonsense. You know, 99% of the treatments that went on in the last, you know, 150 years since we've had asylums were nonsense. Um, uh, but if I, I found that if I was looking at the outside, when I started to write it, I was kind of rewriting that. And I very much wanted to write my own place from scratch, my own idea of it. Um, and very important for me to have this sense of, I mean, it's called Heaven Ward, the ward that these, it's rather mm. ironic and kind of sarcastic and actually slightly taunting um, on the basis that the only way these serial killers are getting out of Heaven Ward is if they're either headed, you know, for for heaven or hell, depending on, you know, your <laughs> belief system. Um, or, but it's just very high in the sky, so they're going out through a window or they're, you know, being taken uh, in a body bag down the stairs. And there's realistically no other way. Um, so I wanted to have that height. I want to have them able to look out uh, to a huge reservoir lake at the front and mountains at the back um, and, and see this space and this beauty all around them and knowing that they're never actually going to be able to go out and touch it, which seemed to me to be... Um, claustrophobic in itself, being able to see freedom when you're stuck in a tiny room is a very claustrophobic feeling. A lot of your writing is kind of quite firmly located in sort of you know, places we could yes. find. Is, is this the first time you've kind of gone for a more <laughs> mythical place? It is. Um, I didn't want to be bound by one set of rules or terminology or laws or procedures. Um, because uh, that would have meant limiting myself to what you call, and it's, this becomes quite difficult. So then uh, if it's based in America or Scotland or, you know, kind of uh, Europe or South America, uh, the nurses, the orderlies, the doctors, the procedures, the rules under which people are kept, you have to be very specific to that. And mm. I didn't want to limit myself. Um, and, but also I've read a few books lately and it, I guess it didn't really occur to me to base it nowhere that is stated. But it, it's quite liberating because, you know, my books are translated into lots of different languages. And what I was thinking was that it's quite nice if you don't say which country this is in, because then people can uh, just see it in a place they know or the place they are. They're not having to think, oh, this is Scotland, right, what, what's Scotland like? It can be somewhere familiar to mm. them. Um, and it's got a fairly international cast. It's got, you know, uh, nurses and doctors and, and background staff that come from everywhere. And it was quite fun because I was able to build up my own set of rules, which was really nice. And I wasn't bound by normal weather or, you know, normal clothes or that sort of thing. So it's a very liberating experience to write a book that you don't state is set anywhere particular. Um, I may have got the wrong end of the stick with my reading, but to me, there were hints of a bit of an attraction between Connie and Barda. Um, and I wanted to ask you, um, how, how do you develop sort of long-term plots like this if you're writing a series? Is it something you already have an idea about, or is it something that comes to you as you, as you work? 
it's very much something that develops if it works. So um, I have a long-running detective series uh, set in Scotland, the, 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 the perfect book starts with Perfect Remains and, and carried on from there. And I knew very early on that my main characters there, um, Luke Kalanak and Ava Turner, were gonna um, be walking slowly towards a kind of relationship. Um, Connie and Barda, even, honestly, even I don't know if there's <laughs> something there. They have this really interesting relationship. He's a lot older than her, actually, but she's a bit of an old soul. Um, she's got a um, difficult history whereby she too spent part of her earlier life um, committed in, in, into a uh, hospital when uh, she was unable to speak following a car accident and it was misdiagnosed as kind of teenage hysteria and willfulness. Um, uh, but she wasn't able to communicate. So she's got this very troubled background and she came out very much with a sort of PTSD, uh, but it also pushed her towards the career that she now has. So she's uh, very confident, but very damaged. And the confidence really is kind of making up for that early damage. Uh, and it's very much a persona that she's decided to adopt, I think. Um, Barder is the complete opposite. He's eaten, educated, uh, terribly well-to-do, um, from a father who was a diplomat, um, but he decided to join the police and he was in the kidnapping unit of the Met for quite a long time. And uh, so he went into a place where actually his eating background didn't really mean anything, which any, if anything, it was going to hamper him rather than uh, push him forward. And so they've both chosen careers which uh, go against the grain of where they've come from. Um, and I think because they're both slightly difficult, awkward souls, they do have that attraction. Um, where that goes in the future, I don't know. I know that they are very uh, protective of each other, and I know that they've, they form this really amazing team. Whether or not either of them feels able to allow that to become something else, I don't know. So um, that, that's a very fluid situation for me as a writer. <laughs> Interesting for readers too. Um... Did you emerge from this project with a kind of different view on mental illness? I think, um, probably not from this project, but I think what it did was allow me to put into words how I felt about people who do terrible things but who have mental illness, because of course I dealt with a lot of these people. And what I always knew from my background as a criminal barrister was that because people do terrible things doesn't mean that uh, they are 100% bad or terrible in every single aspect of their life and always has been. Um, it's, that's an oversimplification. Um, and even people who've done terrible things in the past are capable of um, choosing to do a good thing at the right moment. It's a very complex thing because we like to think that people who do terrible things are just awful and you can just say this is what they are they're a monster and that's it and of course largely they are but it doesn't mean that for every second of every day everything they do is monstrous so they're capable of saying please and thank you they're capable of you know understanding when people are being kind to them sometimes they're capable of um, uh, introspection you know and some of these characters are and some of them are not um, but it's complex. It's never a single flat line when you're dealing with a character in a book. It definitely shouldn't be. Um, and if I go back to Silence of the Lamb and you look at the characters in there, 
um, there's lots of kind of play and give in terms of Hannibal Lecter. You know, he's this terrible person who did dreadful things, but he was helpful when it was most needed. Um, mm. And those are the most interesting characters. Um, you, if we're writing one-dimensional characters, they're not interesting to readers. Yeah, I was interested in the way you controlled the pace, and it really does build to the point where I, I think I was about halfway through and I just read all the rest in one hit. Mm. Yeah, um, and, and it really is about knowing when you're going to, when you want in a book to hit the point when things are going to speed up and making sure that when you've hit that point, you can't then reverse your direction. So are, you get to a point where you should have done all the backstory, where you should have uh, effectively built up every character so the readers can't still be learning about characters at the point in time when you need to shift off pace. So you need to have done all your work. So at that moment when you, and it's particularly true in crime novels, thrillers, action novels, at the moment when the pace gets to a point where you really aren't going to be shifting it down a gear for the rest of the book, you should have done all the work that you need to do. Every character, every location should be in place. And it's things like if you suddenly slow down and want to be describing a whole new layout of something in the middle of, you know, you started off your action sequence towards the end, it just pulls it back down. <clears throat> so your preparation has to have been really good, has to have been done. So that your, even your language can be really fast, so that you should just be able to not have to remind readers who that character was or what they did. So there shouldn't be any extraneous information coming back through. You should just be able to say a name. Uh, and mm. the layout should be clear, whatever it is, whether it's a town or a cruise ship or something, the layout should be so clear in the reader's mind by then that you can just say she ran down the hallway, she took the second left through the kitchen, she did this, and the reader isn't having to stop and think, hold on, hold on, hold on, I don't know that bit. But it's also the point where, as a writer, you should get to a stage where you think, I know everything now, I know exactly what's going to happen, and you should be desperate to write it. When I get to the point where I'm desperate to go on now, and it's just like, I've got to get this out, I've got to get it down, then you know that, you know, the, the point is there. From there on in, it's a kind of, you know, uh, kind of uh, high speed all the way to the end. I just want to ask um, about um, narrative perspective. Most of the novels told in close third person um, from Connie's perspective, and then you have one chapter for Barda. And I was just um, interested in why that was. Is it because he had access to things that we can't see through Connie? Or... It is. <clears throat> and also, I got to a point where I needed to break from Connie. Yeah. Um, and it was a very important device just to come away from her for a moment, because actually she's quite an intense character to write and to read. So she gets to a point where she feels um, very trapped in this place, and she feels like... Um, she's not going to be getting out and she's her mental state is going downhill and downhill and I wanted the reader to come away from her to have a little bit of a break and we go to Barda it was very important that you saw the things you did with Barda um, but also just to bring the reader into his world a little bit <clears throat> he's a very much a side character in this but he is still important and he's important to Connie and I needed a moment to build up what the reader could see and feel about Barda. And thereafter, 
you know, things happened to Barda that I didn't want the reader to find out about or to know about definitely until the end again. Um, and so really it's about getting to a point in time where you have to think, um, I need the reader to worry about what Connie's doing. And yeah, I can't do that if they're seeing through her eyes, so I have to come away from her. Then I need the reader to understand why she's worried about Barda, so we can't see Barda for a few chapters. So it's very much about getting into the reader's head and seeing uh, through their eyes what they need to worry about. And the best way to make a reader worry about something is to take them off the page for a little bit of time. And then, then you're just thinking about what's going on in the background, what am I not seeing? It's quite an interesting device to do, to, to take somebody away from the thing that they should be most worried about. And then you get to drop back into it uh, and to answer those questions. Yes, so I always get that with what happened to the dog in crime novels. I'm always worried about <laughs> if there's a dog Absolutely. anywhere, I sort of clock it and I'm like, where yeah. is it now? I oh know. no. <laughs> I know. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a website called Does the Dog Die? And it's about it's all films that tells you if any animals die in in the films. Oh, and yeah. um, people are so worried about it. they don't care about people dying, do they? No, it's so <laughs> funny. I've got one, one of the Kalanak books. Um, I um, <clears throat> have a horse that goes through a very bad time, very briefly, because, you know, you don't want to upset people too much, but very, very briefly. And uh, honestly, the um, letters I got about what happened to the fictional horse uh, were extraordinary, given that at the same time, it was probably the most violent book I wrote yeah. uh, about human beings doing terrible things to other human beings, and nobody wrote to me about that at all. Bizarre. Hmm. Did you um, base your patient cases on any real cases, or were they all out of your head? No, they're all out of my head. Mm. I'm really careful not to... I mean, there are ethical reasons why I can't go back to any of the cases I did or, you know, I, mm. I knew about firsthand. It would be wrong to do that. Um, and um, I also don't repeat anything that I've got out of my research in terms of cases um, because I think that's appropriation, so I don't do that anyway. Um, but also, um, when you clear your mind and don't base any of those parts of your story on anything you've read or know, um, it's, uh, it gives you huge freedom. I can make up exactly what I want to do. I'm not trying to fit it in with someone else's story or timeline. Um, so yes, I'm afraid I take full responsibility for all the terrible things that people do in my books. They come directly from me. Um, and, uh, you know, I... I want to say it's good fun to write that stuff. Fun is sometimes not the right word. Um, it's really interesting and um, compelling when you get to, you know, you've got a blank page and you can write about something really terrible, uh, you know, safe in the knowledge that, um, you know, you're not kind of drudging up somebody else's pain. Did you find your view of kind of self to be changed at all by writing this book? Because uh, yeah, I think that's kind of maybe why people are interested in mental illness. You're kind of yeah. by um, exploring those extremes. You do kind of uh, yeah. You know, I like writing Connie Woolwine because she has got her own hang-ups. You know, she's in a strange place emotionally, um, and I do like exploring psychology in my books. I do it in a lot of my books, um, and I think we learn from ourselves. And definitely, there are periods when. Connie Woolwine is giving advice, both in Go Back in the Shadow Man, Want for Sorrow, and very much in the institution. Uh, so the mother of the uh, dead nurse, the woman who dies at the start, you know, she spends a lot of time 
uh, and also with uh, one of the the director of the institution who gets to a point where says I'm not prepared to deal with this you know and she takes people aside and she gives them things that will help um, mantras or kind of you know talk tell explain to them how to get through it and I spend quite a lot of time I don't steal that from anyone so that's not stuff that I particularly research I don't want to I spend quite a lot of my time on my own thinking through where these uh, damaging and negative emotions arise how it's best to deal with them what advice I would give what advice I'd expect to be given um, and getting into Connie's head and I do find quite often that when through Connie I write advice to other people about how to deal with difficult things um, it's normally because it's advice I'm kind of giving to myself so um, I think it's quite useful I wrote a long thing in um, uh, before but kind of giving advice on on losing someone you love and how to deal with grief and the number of people who wrote to me readers who wrote to me after that um, and said I just you know found those two paragraphs really really helpful just it kind of encapsulated every feeling I had but I couldn't put them into words and I think we have an opportunity sometimes as writers to delve quite deep into the human psyche um, and to um, I think our job is to come up with a way of putting things into words that we otherwise find very hard to express um, mm. on a day-to-day -day level and that is quite a learning curve when you do it right as a writer, it's an amazing thing to be able to hit a point where you've really been able to capture a moment or to capture a problem and to, to, to put it into uh, just a couple of paragraphs that other people can take something away from. That is, doesn't happen very often. You know, it's kind of maybe once in a book that you have that moment when you do something that you look back and think, oh, that was, you know, that was extraordinary. Um, uh, but it's probably the best bit of writing a, a book like this. Hmm. I, I do find it very interesting, our fascination with serial killers. It's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Do you have any views on, on that? I think, I think we are. I think the human condition is to be fascinated by the terrible things that people can do. That's why when we read a newspaper, what we're reading is 90% bad news. If the human condition was to read bad news, our newspapers would have a very different feel and tone. Um, you know, and that's why when you, you turn on the news, you're seeing about people dying. That the news isn't. Oh my gosh, these twenty-two babies have been born in Arundel area today. It's, you know, we don't report that. We report bad stuff, and it's strange. And that is what we deem news. News is bad stuff. News is school shootings and massive car pileups and a volcano erupting and people dying from that. If you think about what proportion of our news is based around people killing, we're not just obsessed by serial killers. We're obsessed by people dying, people being hurt, people committing crimes, people betraying each other. Even if you look at just social media and things like that, you know, the big news stories are, are you know, about the terrible things. Um, mm -hmm. Our interest in life doesn't seem to be based around really great stories, which is why occasionally there's a good news story on TV. Everyone kind of goes, oh, isn't that amazing? It's a good news story. <laughs> But we never sit and think, why don't we do that 90% of the time? We just don't. So we are. We do look at the darkness. We look at the tragedy in our lives. We, you know, when something happens which is truly horrific, like 9-11, um, quite often we find ourselves watching 
24-hour news coverage on it for quite a long time, rather than going, right, I know something terrible, really terrible just happened. You know, I've kind of got the bare bones of that. I know how many people died, whatever. We don't then switch off and not read about it or watch it again for another week. We keep the news on for four hours a day while we're doing everything. So we do, our psyche is to be horrified, it's to look at what's happening, it's to feel shocked, it's to feel sad, and we are, we are obsessed with it. You know, true crime podcasts, um, true crime documentaries yes, are popular. in there, yeah, are in their heyday, my goodness me. Um, and we're fascinated by it, and I think that's just, it's just who we are, it's what separates us from animals. Animals have the good sense that, you know, one of their own dies, they stand, they mourn for a while, they walk away, and they think, right, where's my next food, whatever. Human beings are very strange creatures. That's why crime is the best-selling genre. Um, because we do like learning about this. We like learning where our boundaries are. Where is the human boundary for what you can, you know, for the things we could do for each other? And every time that boundary is pushed a little bit further, whether it's in fiction or on the news, whatever, that's when everyone goes, oh, I want to read that or I want to see that. It's when we push it that bit further, we are very strange creatures. I think your answer makes my next question redundant in a way, but um, is, is this topic, mental illness, um, one you think you'll return to in a, another book? Yeah, you know, and I've touched on it quite often previously, so quite a lot of the people I've written in the past have their own mental illness, but what I do in every single book is I don't just have this black and white, terrible character who does these things, I always look at backstory. Uh, I'm always looking at psychology. I'm always looking at, you know, where they've come from. And when I wrote the first Connie Woolwine book, uh, The Shadow Man, that was about a man who was suffering from something called walking corpse syndrome, which is a real syndrome whereby the person suffering from it honestly believes they are dead. They think they're dead. They don't know why they're walking around. They think they don't need to eat. They think they don't breathe oxygen because they believe they're dead. And actually, the more research I do, I've got a little kind of list of things that I'm fascinated in. Um, you know, the, it, these things are rare and one-off, but they do give rise to some really interesting characters. Um, mental health as a subject is a very difficult one because you have to be constantly mindful of the, your terminology around the subject and of not offending people and not creating stereotypes, which is very difficult when we're writing serial killers. Uh, if you think about all the famous serial killers from film and literature and things, um, they're all stereotyped to an extent. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very hard not to. But if you add a layer of psychology and psychiatry and backstory to that, if you fill in those brushstroke points, you can move beyond the stereotype into the real person inside it. So yes, mental illness, illness is mental health is really, really interesting, mostly because we're all on it. There's not just this, you know, spectrum, spectrum to do with autism. We're all on this spectrum all the time. You know, there, no one gets through childhood, teenage life, you know, work, sort of, you know, trying to make the ends meet without taking some mental knocks. So the question is with every character, um, you know, where's the impact? Where does the impact of those knocks come out? Uh, and who are, who are, who is everyone really when the kind of, you know, when the makeup comes off? Brilliant. And um, what are you, what, how are you going to follow up the institution with a, another book in 
um, about Connie, do you think, and Bada, or do you think you work on something else? Um, so I'm writing the book right now that will come out in 2024, um, and uh, Connie, Connie will make a fleeting visit through that as, a, um, as an advisor. That is very much about profiling. Um, but it's about uh, profiling set within the context of new technology. So a big global uh, tech company uh, picks up profiling as a way to make money for employers. You know, there's a university application, everyone gets psychologically profiled, but through a set of, um, you know, technological tests that you do and this sort of thing. So I've taken a lot of the psychology out of there. I've taken Connie very briefly advising how that would work. Um, and then um, I've uh, looked at the profile specifically of a serial killer and how you would find that if you were doing generic testing for everyone. Uh, so that's what I'm writing at the moment. I suspect Connie and Barda will be back. Um, they've definitely got a lot more story to tell. Uh, they might be back in a book for 2025. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely not done with those two yet. I think um, I definitely want to explore Barda a bit more as well. I feel like he's got a lot more depth to him. So uh, my characters live rent-free continuously in my mind. As soon as I've written them <laughs> in one book, uh, they're constantly there. Great. Oh, mm. I can't, can't wait to read um, either of those. They sound mm. fantastic. Um, thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for um, telling our listeners about, about your book. Thank you. Um, Lovely questions. Thanks so much. The Institution, Chapter One. The dead often made more compelling company than the living. That had been Connie's experience. They told their story plainly, without subterfuge or hyperbole, and they asked for remarkably little in return. Justice, perhaps, or to protect others who might follow the same path, though this particular body was going to make greater demands on her, and rightly so. Dr Connie Woolwine gripped the corpse's hand with her own. In life... The two of them might have been friends, bonded through a mutual love of medicine and helping the hopeless. In death, the common denominator was the baby one of them had carried and whom the other had been engaged to find. Who took her from you, Tara? Connie asked. How could they have been so cruel? She ran gloved fingers over the dead woman's hair, admiring the silken mass, bobby pins still stuck randomly here and there, where a struggle had loosened her bun. Do you mind if I look at what they did to you? I'll be gentle. You can trust me. Connie gave it a moment before folding down a section of the sheet that covered Nurse Tara Cameron's body and was reminded of a childhood game played in a group. Each player had a piece of paper and a pencil. One person drew feet, folded the paper over and passed it on, the next drew the legs and folded it again, and so on, until there was a whole body waiting to be revealed in all its ridiculous, hilarious jollity. Not so the picture unfolding before her eyes now. Connie let the injuries, the brushstrokes of murder, tell their story. Tara's face was relatively unmarked, unless you counted the mascara that had bled down from her eyes, the wet blackness dripping outwards to leave sad trails across each temple. The young woman had been on her back as she died, and she'd been conscious for most of it, crying both for the loss of her child and for her own impending end. 
she would have had more than enough medical knowledge to understand that there was no way of surviving what was happening to her. That was best-selling author Helen Fields reading from her new crime novel, The Institution, which will be published by HarperCollins on the 2nd of March. This episode was produced by Martin Nathan. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not consider supporting us on Patreon? You can find us at www.patreon.com forward slash story radio. Thanks for listening and please stay in touch.